1: That's stamps.com. Code Program.
2: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you've missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Let's talk about this with Dr Lawrence Buckman, who's former chair of the British Medical Association's GP committee and, of course, North London GP uh, and a regular here on Talk Radio. Good morning to you, Lawrence. Good morning. Good morning. Now, let's just go through some of the, the issues in terms of testing. Uh, Boris Johnson, in this interview with the Sun, has talked about his plan to save Christmas and uh, and how a second lockdown would be disastrous. Uh, the appearance for the uh, liaison committee, sort of the heads of all the different committees uh, in the in Commons yesterday, uh, he did uh, say that you know he, he was desperate for there not to be a second lockdown, but every is going to be dependent on, of course, the testing regime. We've got an increase in tests, but very large increases in tests. We are seeing some increases in hospitalizations and deaths but not at a corresponding uh, rate but one of the big issues here is lots of people trying to get tests not being able to get tests. They can't get tests at all. They can't get tests near their home. Uh, they can't get the test results back quickly. We're told now that something like uh, 4% of teachers could be self-isolating at home because of a uh, uh, contact with pupils who may, or their own children who may Have come into contact with the virus. Um, There are big issues here for the, uh, I suppose, the opening up of society at schools and workplaces. If we haven't got testing, where do you, as a GP, watching this, where do you think things are going wrong?
3: There is something clearly wrong in the ability to get a test and the the uh, capacity of the testing system. I don't know if it's the laboratories. They say it's the laboratories or the test venues themselves. All I know is patients who I direct to get a test can't get one. And a lot of patients contact the health service simply because they don't know what to do because they can't get a test. So it's actually generating a lot of work for the health service uh, trying to cope with the the absence of sufficient tests. It was obvious this was going to be happening when society opened up, particularly once schools and universities go back.
2: Well, this is the thing. It's, 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 it is highly predictable, and we are doing more testing than pretty much every other comparable country in the in the EU. I mean, way, way more than France and Spain, who have seen this uptick as well, uh, and way more even we think than Germany. They, as I mentioned earlier, they, they compile their numbers on a regional basis, so difficult to look at it nationally. Um, so we are, we are, we do have a huge capacity. Nothing like the half a million daily tests we were. Uh, the Prime Minister has, has promised uh, for later this year, or indeed the, the you know millions of tests a day that they're talking about with their moonshot uh, plan which i don't think anyone thinks is actually ever going to happen um can i mean can we reliably have people back in their workplaces um you know people back on public transport in, in large numbers and and children back in school consistently without a testing regime where if you say for instance you know someone in your office or a child in your child's school gets a has a cough and a, 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 and, a, and a, other symptoms of coronavirus can't get tested immediately and if they are positive that the whole class or the whole year or the whole office in that case can't get tested is it is it possible for us to get back to normal life if we haven't got that testing capacity
3: the only way you can do it without a big testing capacity is to swallow hard and say only those people who have COVID symptoms can have a test. So no longer will we do tests because of people, because people have been exposed either at work or at school or wherever. Exposure will no longer be enough of a reason. Now, I'm not advocating that because actually we should be testing people who've been exposed. But if you haven't got enough tests, clearly that group of people Uh, have to drop out of the testing regime, and that may be inevitable... Bearing in mind we haven't got enough tests.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, we are, I think we all understand prioritising people who, who need to be tested. And um, obviously, in, in hospital, they'll need to know. And the government has said, you know, people in, in NHS, uh, patients, those who work in the NHS and social care homes, because care homes were supposed to have been promised all these tests over the summer. They haven't materialised, but uh, we are now seeing some growth in the community and therefore some growth inevitably as people come in from the community. The, you know, the, st- the, the staff don't live in the care homes. Uh, that's going up. Um, and obviously, they They should be priorities rather than a younger, healthier population and certainly school children. But again, the whole point of testing, wasn't it, was to test people, find out if they're positive or not, track and trace their contacts to find out if they are also positive. That's how you limit the spread. That's how you prevent the lockdown. Um, In which case, any cost and any effort put into that surely has a massive, massive payoff compared to the cost of shutting down businesses and schools again.
3: Yes. I mean, it's... this was a priority. This should have been done. We should have seen it coming. The the NHS is currently getting a huge surge of worried parents with children who either have symptoms, which are almost certainly going to be a cold, not COVID, or they've been sent back to get a test by their school because the school is worried that it's going to spread in the school. I understand why teachers feel this way. I don't blame them at all. But we we just haven't got the capacity anymore to do that. I think you can forget the moonshot thing. Uh, I think think that's just not going to happen. One day it may happen, but it's not going to happen any time in the near future. So it's not a credible solution to today's problem.
2: And and is it a massive issue if um, people are not getting the results quickly? And obviously, you know, if you're you're finding out you're positive, um, uh, it's a question of tracking down who you've been with, but you're supposed to be self-isolating after you've had the test until you get the results either way. But if you're negative, of course, it means you can get back to work. Now, again, whether that's a teacher or the kid getting back to school or people who, you know, particularly those who aren't on PAYE, you know, can't just get paid for a day off and don't, you know, might lose their job. That's going to be absolutely crucial but is there any um, uh, sort of medical significance of people not getting their results immediately?
3: No. I mean, all it means is you're slowed up in the process of test and trace. You can't isolate people properly. So what I was doing uh, yesterday was telling people to isolate until they have a test and then to keep on isolating until they get a result. Whereas before, the whole idea was... If you had symptoms, you could get a test, you got the result within 24 hours, which meant you only missed one or two days of school or work. But that's not happening now. People are missing one or two weeks before they're they're in a position, usually one week, before they're in a position to know whether they're, they're infectious or not.
2: Which is a very long time off school and a very, very long time uh, off work as well. Let's talk about the prospect of a curfew, though. The, I mean, the, the whole idea was in the last couple of weeks has come up that okay, you know, cases are going up, fear that we could end up with lockdown over Christmas. I think a lot of people have been as depressed as I am at the prospect that we could go into that. Look, we're going to be talking to some experts later in the show about whether or not actually lockdown does actually prevent um, uh, people dying of this virus um, and whether or not that is actually a sensible measure or not and whether or not we should trust a lot of these testing results false positives alike but the prospect more immediate is what's happened in the northeast um what's well, going to happen from tonight 10 p.m curfew on pubs and restaurants and a sort of partial lockdown starting from midnight tonight for two million people across uh, newcastle sunderland durham uh, and other towns and villages in that area um do you think that a 10 p.m curfew would make any difference
3: No, I can't see what it can do that's useful. Uh, As as your previous speaker said, there's nothing to stop you having a house party. Um, And um, although we're meant to be limiting to six, we know that people are gathering in much bigger quantities than six. And so I I can't see in in private places. uh, I, I can't see a 10 p.m. curfew working. You'd have to enforce a curfew, and I'm not sure it's enforceable. You'd have to start much earlier in the evening, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we all do know that. I um, say I'm, I'm I'm the mother of a teenage daughter. I'm certainly going to be having curfews throughout the teenagers. There are certain things that uh, that happen later at night when people are drunker. In terms of people, you know, forgetting social distancing. And so I've certainly been to a couple of gatherings uh, since uh, we we have had the social distancing rules, where I've noticed that people's good behaviour at 6 p.m. in the evening is not perhaps echoed uh, a few hours later. The, you could argue the case on that, but the reality is most people. Have been obeying the rules and the social distancing, haven't they? Again, most people are, pay, are, are wearing the masks and, and 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 you know following all the rules and being very careful. I, I don't know any family that hasn't been sort of been worried about elderly people, uh, their relatives, and, and 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 limiting contact deliberately ahead of times so that they're seeing them. I, I, we are talking about a few people, a small minority, and and the entire country effectively being punished for their misdeeds. What do you feel about that, as a doctor?
3: Yes, I. I don't like the idea of scapegoating and punishing. I think people don't realise that they can spread this virus. Indeed, they can have it without any symptoms whatsoever. You can have it and not know. I might have it and not know. Um, And so it it behoves everybody to be very, very careful. And, of course, you don't need many people not to be careful to start an outbreak. There's a story yesterday in, in Pontypris that a group of men... From a social club, yeah. went on a pub, a pub crawl, um, on a bus from from Doncaster to to Pontypridd. Now, um, those people may well have spread coronavirus amongst hundreds of contacts.
2: Yeah, I have to say, the, the the idea of going on a pub crawl at this time does seem to me to be utterly absurd. But there we are, Dr. Lawrence Butman, always talking sense, North London GP, former chair of the BMAS uh, GP committee. Talk
3: Radio Breakfast with Julia hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed.
2: Let's talk to Jeff Barton, who's General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders representing headmasters across the country. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia, not just headmasters. Do you know what? As I said it, I thought, (laughs) what? Oh, I mean, what was I thinking? Head teachers.
4: Ever the uh, English teacher.
2: Oh, yeah, I like it. I wouldn't expect anything less from you. Jack. Let's talk about this issue. I I think the laughs have to end now, unfortunately. Um, But um, we're told that uh, something like 25,000 teachers at any one time may now be self-isolating at home. That's 4% of teachers. Um, And that means thousands of teachers at home, thousands of pupils also at home waiting for test results. Probably not ill, almost certainly not ill, but um, thought they'd been exposed either to someone else who's had the virus or, or perhaps to children who... You know, coughing in the class, as let's face it, they do in uh, the September and October and autumn months. Um, Is it sustainable for schools to stay open properly, uh, as we were hoping they would, without a test and trace system where the whole school year can get tested if necessary at day's notice?
4: Well, I think that's, that's the question, isn't it? Is it sustainable? I think there are some good signs today and I think people might be uh reassured that I'm actually coming here to say something positive which has happened overnight but let's just go back one step what my members say uh, whatever their gender running schools and colleges what they would say is they've done their part of the deal we've got pretty much seven million children now in schools getting back where they should be and we've had many discussions about that you and I but as one of them said to me yesterday I feel hoodwinked because the next bit was that if a child or in particular if a member of staff showed symptoms then we need to be able to very quickly find out whether they genuinely have got this disease or if they haven't got it. And that depends on good uh, testing system. And the frustration has been people phoning public health, waiting sometimes four or five hours for a response. Parents getting more and more agitated, saying, well, does my child have to come in tomorrow? Have you had an outbreak? And so on. hysteria mounting. And that's why fundamentally what we need is a very quick response, because we don't want to have teachers in the position that they're making a decision around public health, that has to be a public health decision. And that has been the problem up to, I think, this morning, where I think there has been an announcement which may just change things a
2: bit. Well, indeed, I mean, we, we know that uh, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, said that actually something like a quarter of the, the testing capacity is being used by people who don't meet the criteria. And often those will be parents bringing children to be tested. So a child in their class or even in their whole beer bubble, so often a few hundred children uh, has been sent home, hasn't had a test yet, hasn't or even had results yet. No one knows whether they're positive or not. But your child, because are in the same year, basically sent home and told you need to get a test or the parents doing it uh, themselves off their own back uh, to check that their child hasn't been exposed. Now, realistically, you know, these children have a, I mean, infinitesimally small chance that they will be testing positive, um, using up capacity for people who, who do need it. but. But the trouble is, this was kind of what we were promised, wasn't it? That that we would have a test and trace capacity at this level for September when kids went back to school so that any concerns could be allayed within 24 hours and that would keep everything running. So how does it function then?
4: Yes. And of course, you had this notion of bubbles of young people, which in a primary school, you can understand it's fairly easy to keep all of those year fives in their class with their teacher and their teaching assistant and keep them separate at break time and lunchtime. that's straightforward. But in a secondary school where you might have a bubble of 240 children, if one of those children goes to reception saying, uh, you know, I've got some of these symptoms here. Well, the decision by the head is to send them home and say, well, you need to get a test. And then what you're doing is waiting to see what the result of that test is, because the implication of the government guidance was that all the children, the other 239 children in that bubble, may have to be sent home as well. Now, that will seem pretty remarkable to a lot of people listening to it, but that was the guidance. And the idea, of course, is not that this is a particular risk to individual children. It's that they transmit all of that. And the bigger implication in one way is if you're running a smallish primary school and your year five teacher is off waiting for a test because they've got symptoms and then a year three teacher is, that's where it starts to look yeah. unsustainable because you're thinking, well, who is going to be covering that class tomorrow or for the next two weeks? Yes. If that's how long the self-isolation is going to be.
2: And, and that's where getting the testing and getting everyone back in who's, who's not at risk. Now, you mentioned you had some good news. What's the good news?
4: Well, you know, I'm speaking to you from Suffolk, where you've got lots and lots of small primary schools, and the notion that every one of those head teachers in, let's say, 500 schools was going to be phoning their local public health to say, "I've got someone who's got symptoms. What do I do?" Overnight, what the government has said is that from next week there will be a new centralised system where it's essentially a kind of hotline, which isn't locally based, but you phone saying, "Here are the symptoms. Here's what my school is like. What do I do?" And what they're saying, and we cautiously welcome it because. You you know, we've had a bit of a record of overpromising things. What we, we we welcome the notion that this should speed up the process of someone making the public health decision that shouldn't be left yeah. to the head teacher. From next week, we would hope that that will speed things up, as well as the promise that yeah. people working in education will get priority, along with other key workers.
2: Okay. Well, uh, let's uh, let's hope that is uh, born out across the country. Jeff Barton, really appreciate you joining us, General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders.
3: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility
2: with your health insurance? Check out
3: United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work.
2: breakfast
3: with Julia Hargley Brewer and the times know your times
2: Good morning to you Damien Green Good morning, Julia. Uh, Yes, the papers are now full of this uh, talk of there is uh, some sort of compromise between the government threatening uh, to uh, basically break international law with the Internal Market Bill in terms of how it affects Northern Ireland protocols. Uh, You have been among those, including Sir Bob Neill, leading rebels uh, over this issue. But an agreement has been reached. What is that agreement?
0: Uh, The agreement is that essentially the government will itself uh, put forward the amendment that Bob Neill Uh, had proposed, which I was supporting, uh, which said that the particular clauses relating to Northern Ireland in the Internal Market Bill uh, should be taken separately. They won't be introduced at the same time as the rest of the bill. If they're needed, which would only be in the case of the government not reaching a deal uh, with the European Union, Uh, then they would be put to a separate parliamentary vote uh, Mm -hmm. and that the government would would then explain that the reason they had to put this into force was that the European Union um, had not been negotiating in good faith, uh, and so the government would go into the dispute procedure, which is in the Northern Ireland, the um, withdrawal agreement, uh, and so the, you know, the government will be behaving legally, essentially. Our okay. objection was we don't like to see the British government breaking international law. I
2: mean, the, the, Boris Johnson always said this was an insurance policy. I mean, to all intents and purposes, by the way, this deal doesn't sound like a compromise. It sounds more like capitulation uh, by the government. Um, but Boris Johnson uh, and his ministers have always said this is, is an insurance policy in case we don't get a deal and in case the EU uh, have an interpretation of the withdrawal agreement in those terms uh, which would lead to things like they were saying, you know, a uh, 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 embargo, effectively, you know, on, on, on food, restrictions and the like uh, for uh, for Northern Ireland. Um, what do you make of, of the claim from Boris Johnson to the Liaison Committee yesterday in the Commons when asked if they thought the EU were negotiating in good faith? He said, I don't believe they are. Do you agree?
0: Well, I'm not at the negotiation, so it's difficult for me to say. All, all I can say is that uh, he and David Frost have made that, that case to us, to those of us who, who were supporting uh, the Bob Neill Amendment, uh, that actually one of the reasons these negotiations have proved difficult is that various things the EU should have done, uh, they haven't done, and that you know, obviously the negotiations are carrying on uh, and yeah, you know, I very much hope they succeed, it would be much better if we left with the deal, but they said we, 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 do need, you know, we may come to the point where we haven't got a deal, at which point to preserve trade, the proper trade between Britain and well, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, i.e. inside the UK, they will need these emergency clauses. Um, we wanted to put um, an extra Commons vote, if you like, on that so that... Uh, there, there could be no sense of law breaking because the law would have been made specifically in those circumstances by the House of Commons as it should be.
2: Okay, we well, yeah, again, the whole point of Brexit was that our, our, the laws we obey would be made by us entirely. Um, there does seem to be um, you know, some, some words of warning coming out of the European Commission. The President Ursula von der Leyen in a State of the Union speech yesterday uh, basically talked about the chances of a deal of falling. We're also seeing problems of a impossibility for a deal with the United States for a trade deal there. Nancy Pelosi, uh, senior Democrats, uh, warning there'll be no Brexit deal if there was any change to the Good Friday Agreement, any threat to that and peace in Northern Ireland. Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president, uh, he's also sent out a tweet yesterday on the same issue. Um, are we in danger of, of, of leaving the EU at the end of the, well, leaving the the transition period at the end of the year and, and not getting either an EU deal or indeed a, a deal with the United States? And if so, does that really matter, given that we for instance already trade with the United States without a deal
0: at all? Well, I, I think the, the the two issues are bound up. Uh, that the, the route through is that if we get a deal with the EU, then there won't be, uh, by definition, any threat uh, to the Good Friday Agreement. And therefore, we can proceed to get a deal with the United States as well. I mean, that, that won't be easy, you know, even regardless of this particular problem. Um, but I think what, what the, if you like, the uh, the threats, if you want to put them that dramatically, from the United States show um, is how important it is to get a deal. It's not only important because the EU is collectively our biggest single trading partner, but the biggest single individual country we trade with is the United States. we get trade deals with both of those, then... That's great. That's very, very good for British business and jobs and prosperity. If we don't get one and if that threatens the other, then we've got a much bigger hill to climb economically over
2: the next decade. Okay. thank you so much for joining us, Damien Green, former Deputy Prime Minister, of course, Tory MP and Chairman of the One Nation Caucus of MPs. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10.